Chapter sixty one to sixty two of Tristram Shandy, Volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Julie von Mulligan. The Life and Opinions of Tristram Shandy, Gentleman, Volume two, by Lawrence Stern. Chapter sixty one. See if he is not cutting it into slips and giving them about him to light their pipes. "'Tis abominable,' answered Didius. "'It should not go unnoticed,' said Dr. Kaisakius. He was one of the Kaisaki of the Low Countries. "'Methinks,' said Didius, half-rising from his chair, in order to remove a bottle at a tall decanter, which stood in the direct line between Tim and Yorick, you might have spared this sarcastic stroke, and have hit upon a mere proper place, Mr. Yorick, or at least upon a more proper occasion to have shown your contempt of what you have been about. If the sermon is of no better worth than to light pipes with, it was certainly, sir, not good enough to be preached before so learned a body. And if it was good enough to be preached before so learned a body, it was certainly, sir, too good to light their pipes with afterwards. I have got him fast hung up, quoth Didius to himself, upon one of the two horns of my dilemma, to let him get off as he can. I have undergone such unspeakable torments in bringing forth this sermon, quoth Yorick, upon this occasion, that I declare, Didius, I would suffer martyrdom, and if it was possible, my horse with me, a thousand times over, before I would sit down and make such another. I was delivered of it at the wrong end of me. It came from my head instead of my heart, and it is for the pain it gave to me both in writing and preaching of it that I revenge myself of it in this manner. To preach, to shew the extent of our reading, or the subtleties of our wit, to parade in the eyes of the vulgar with a baggily account of a little learning, tinseled over with a few words which glitter, but convey little light and less warmth, is a dishonest use of the poor single half-hour in a week which is put into our hands. It is not preaching the gospel, but ourselves. For my own part, continued Yorick, I had rather direct five words point-blank to the heart. As Yorick pronounced the word point-blank, my uncle Toby rose up to say something upon projectiles, when the single word and no more uttered from the opposite side of the table drew every one's ears towards it, a word of all others in the dictionary, the last in that place to be expected. A word I am ashamed to write, yet must be written, must be read, illegal, uncanonical. Guess ten thousand guesses multiplied into themselves. Rack, torture your invention forever, your way was. In short, I'll tell it in the next chapter. Chapter sixty two. Zounds! Zounds! cried Vittorius, partly to himself, and yet high enough to be heard. And what seemed odd, it was uttered in a construction of look and in a tone of voice, somewhat between that of a man in amazement and one in bodily pain. One or two had very nice ears and could distinguish of the expression a mixture of the two tones as plainly as a third, or a fifth, or any other chord in music, but the most puzzled and perplexed with it. The concord was good in itself, but then it was quite out of the key, 
and no way applicable to the subject started, so that with all their knowledge they could not tell what in the world to make of it. Others, who knew nothing of musical expressions, and merely lent their ears to the plain import of the word, imagined that Fidatorius, who was somewhat of a choleric spirit, was just going to snatch the cudgels out of Didius's hands, in order to be more Yorick to some purpose, and that a desperate monosyllable, zounds, was the exordium to an oration, which, as they judged from the sample, presaged but a rough kind of handling of him, so that my uncle Toby's good nature felt a pang for what Yorick was about to undergo. But seeing Fidatorius stop short, without any attempt or desire to go on, a third party began to suppose that it was no more than an involuntary respiration, casually forming itself into the shape of a twelfth panios, without a sin or substance of one. Others, and especially one or two who sat next him, looked upon it on the contrary as a real and a substantial oath, propensely formed against Yorick, to whom he was known to bear no good liking, which said oath, as my father philosophized upon it, actually fretting and fuming at that very time in the upper regions of Fittatorian's pertinence, and so was naturally, and according to the due course of things, first squeezed out by the sudden influx of blood which was driven into the right ventricle of Fittatorius's heart, by the stroke of surprise which so strange a theory of preaching had excited. How finally we argue upon mistaken facts! There was not a soul busied in all these various reasonings upon the monosyllable which Fittatorius uttered, who did not take this for granted, proceeding upon it as from an axiom, namely, that Fittatorius's mind was intent upon the subject of debate which was arising between Didius and Yorick, and indeed, as he looked first towards the one and then towards the other, with the air of a man listening to what was going forwards, who would not have thought the same. But the truth was, that Fittatorius knew not one word or one syllable of what was passing, but his whole thoughts and attention were taken up with the transaction which was going forward at that very instant, within the precincts of his own Galligascans, and in a part of them, whereof all others he stood most interested to watch accidents, so that notwithstanding he looked with all the attention in the world, and had gradually screwed up every nerve and muscle in his face to the utmost pitch the instrument would bear, in order, as it was thought, to give a sharp reply to Yorick, who sat over against him, yet I say, was Yorick never once in any one domicile of Fidatorius's brain, but a through cause of his exclamation lay at least a yard below. This I will endeavour to explain you with all imaginable decency. You must be informed, then, that Gastrophiers, who had taken a turn into the kitchen a little before dinner, to see how things went on, observing a wicker basket of fine chestnuts standing upon the dresser, had ordered that a hundred or two of them might be roasted and sent in, as soon as dinner was over. Gastrophiers, enforcing his orders about them, that Didius, but Fidatorius especially, were particularly fond of him. About two minutes before the time that my uncle Toby interrupted Yorick's harangue, Gastrophius chestnuts were brought in, and as Fidatorius's fondness for him was uppermost in the waiter's head, he laid them directly before Fidatorius, 
wrapped up hot in a clean damask napkin. Now, whether it was physically impossible, with half a dozen all thrust into his napkin at a time, but that some one chestnut of more life and rotundity than the rest must be put in motion, it so fell out, however, that one was actually sent rolling off the table, and as Fittoria sat straddling under, it fell perpendicularly into that particular aperture of Fittoria's breeches, for which, to the shame and indelicacy of our language be it spoke, there is no chaste word throughout all Johnson's dictionary. Let it suffice to say, it was that particular aperture which, in all good societies, the laws of decorum do strictly require, like the Temple of Janus, in peace at least, to be universally shut up. The neglect of this punctilio in Fittatorius, which, by the by, should be warning to all mankind, had opened a door to this accident. Accident, I call it, in compliance to received mode of speaking, but in no opposition to the opinion either of Acrates or Mrs. in this matter. I know they were both prepossessed and fully persuaded of it, and are so to this hour, that there was nothing of accident in the whole event, but that a chestnut's taking that particular cause, and in a manner of its own accord, and then falling with all its heat directly into that one particular place and no other, was a real judgment upon Physitorius for that filthy and obscene treatise, De Concubinis, Ritinandis, which Fittatorius had published about twenty years ago, and was at that identical week, going to give the world a second edition of. It is not my business to dip my pen in this controversy. Much undoubtedly may be wrote on both sides of the question. All that concerns me as a historian is to represent the matter of fact, and render it credible to the reader that a hiatus in Fittatorius's breeches was sufficiently wide to receive the chestnut, and that a chestnut somehow or other, did fall perpendicularly, and piping hot into it, without Fittatorius perceiving it, or any one else at that time. The genial warmth which the chestnut imparted was not undelectable for the first twenty or five and twenty seconds, and did no more than gently solicit Fittatorius' attention towards the part. But the heat gradually increasing, and in a few seconds more getting beyond the point of all sober pleasure, and then advancing with all speed into the regions of pain. The soul of Fittatorius, together with all his ideas, his thoughts, his attention, his imagination, judgment, resolution, deliberation, ratiocination, memory, fancy, with ten battalions of animal spirits, all tumultuously crowded down through different defiles and circuits, to the place of danger, leaving all his upper regions, as you may imagine, as empty as my purse. With the best intelligence which all these messengers could bring him back, Vittorius was not able to dive into the secret of what was going forwards below, nor could he make any kind of conjecture what the devil was the matter with it. However, as he knew not what the true cause might turn out, he deemed it most prudent in the situation he was in at present, to bear it, if possible, like a stoic, which, with the help of some wry faces and compersions of the mouse, he had certainly accomplished, had his imagination continued neuter. But the sallies of the imagination 
are ungovernable in things of this kind. A thought instantly darted into his mind, that though the anguish had the sensation of glowing heat, it might, notwithstanding that, be a bite as well as a burn, and if so, that possibly a nude or a nesca, or some such detested reptile, had crept up and was fastening his teeth, the horrid idea of which was a fresh glow of pain arising that instant from the chestnut, seized Pietatorius with a sudden panic, and in the first terrifying disorder of the passion it threw him, as it has done the best generals upon earth, quite off his guard, the effect of which was this, that he leapt incontinently up, uttering as he rose that interjection of surprise so much discanted upon, with the aposiopestic break after it, marked thus, as zounds, which, though not strictly canonical, was still as little as any man could have said upon the occasion, and which might by, whether canonical or not, Fudatorius could no more help than he could the cause of it. Though this has taken up some time in the narrative, it took up little more time in the transaction than just to allow time for Fidatorius to draw forth the chestnut and throw it down with violence upon the floor, and for Yorick to rise from his chair and pick the chestnut up. It is curious to observe the triumph of slight incidents over the mind. What incredible weight they have in forming and governing our opinions, both of men and things, that trifles, light as air, shall waft a belief into the soul, and plant it so immovably within it, that Euclid's demonstrations, could they be brought to batter it in breach, should not all have power to overthrow it. Yorick, I said, picked up the chestnut which Fudatorius's wrath had flung down. The action was trifling. I am ashamed to account for it. He did it for no reason, but that he thought a chestnut not a yacht worse for the adventure, and that he held a good chestnut worth stooping for. But this incident, trifling as it was, roared differently in Fudatorius's head. He considered this act of Yorick's in getting off his chair and picking up the chestnut as a plain acknowledgment in him that the chestnut was originally his, and in course that it must have been the owner of the chestnut and no one else who could have played him such a prank with it. What greatly confirmed him in this opinion was this, that a table being parallelogrammical and very narrow, it afforded a fair opportunity for Yorick, who sat directly over against Fidatorius, of slipping the chestnut in, and consequently that he did it. The look of something more than suspicion, which Fidatorius cast full upon Yorick, as these thoughts arose, too evidently spoke his opinion, and as Fidatorius was naturally supposed to know more of the matter than any person besides, his opinion at once became the general one, and for a reason very different from any which have been yet given, in a little time it was put out of all manner of dispute. When great or unexpected events fall out upon the stage of this sublunary world, the mind of man, which is an inquisitive kind of a substance, naturally takes a flight behind the scenes to see what is the cause and first spring of them. The search was not long in this instance. It was well known that Yorick had never a good opinion of the treatise which Fidatorius had wrote the Concubinis Retinandis, as a thing which he feared had done hurt in the world, 
and was easily found out, but there was a mystical meaning in Yorick's prank, and that is chucking the chestnut hot and put blank, was a sarcastical fling at his book, the doctrines of which, they said, had inflamed many an honest man in the same place. This conceit awakened some relentus, made Agalesti smile, and if you can recollect the precise look and air of a man's face intent on finding out a riddle, it threw Cassifiers into that form, and in short was thought by many to be a masterstroke of arch wit. This, as the reader has seen from one end to the other, was as groundless as the dreams of philosophy. Yorick, no doubt, as Shakespeare said of his ancestor, was a man of jest, but it was tempered with something which withheld him from that, and many other ungracious pranks, of which he as undeservedly bore the blame. But it was his misfortune all his life long to bear the imputation of saying and doing a thousand things, of which, unless my esteem blinds me, his nature was incapable. All I blame him for, or rather, all I blame and alternately like him for, was that singularity of his temper, which would never suffer him to take pains to set a story right with the world, however in his power. In every ill-usage of that sort, he acted precisely as in the affair of his lean horse. He could have explained it to his honour, but his spirit was above it, and besides, he ever looked upon the inventor, the propagator and believer of an illiberal report alike so injurious to him. He could not stoop to tell his story to them, and so trusted to time and truth to do it for him. This heroic cast produced him inconveniences in many respects. In the present, it was followed by the fixed resentment of Furtatorius, who, as Yorick had just made an end of his chestnut, rose up from his chair a second time, to let him know it, which indeed he did with a smile, saying only that he would endeavour not to forget the obligation. But you must mark and carefully separate and distinguish these two things in your mind. The smile was for the company, the threat was for Yorick. End of chapter 61 to 62